Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm a president here and a professor of Old Testament, and I'm joined by our academic dean and professor of New Testament, Dr. Tommy Keene, and our professor of systematic theology, Gray Sutanto. And we have a special guest this morning, Dr. Dave Silvernail, who's a visiting lecturer in practical pastoral theology here at RTS. Welcome, Dave. Thanks. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. Um, let me give you a little bit of an introduction to our audience. If you're not familiar with Pastor Silvernail, he is not merely a visiting lecturer here at RTS, but he's the senior pastor of Potomac Hills PCA Church in Leesburg, Virginia. Uh, he's been a teaching elder in the PCA for many years and has served at a variety of different levels in Presbytery and a General Assembly. Uh, he's a graduate of American University, so he's a bit of a local boy in that way, and uh, also went to Gordon-Conwell for his MDiv and did a Doctor of Ministry at Covenant Theological Seminary. He's married to Joanne, and they have five children and still 10 grandchildren still 10. okay you haven't, haven't added to that number yet not that anybody's told me <laughs> okay well it's great to have you and what we're going to talk about today is something that's very much in your wheelhouse something that you know both theoretically and practically as a churchman and that's the topic of church polity and so i'd like to start off as we delve into this idea of polity which is a very important topic that's come back up in sort of popular discourse these days can you give us a bit of an introduction? What is polity, church polity, and why is it important? Okay. Um, well, first of all, the church polity is a fancy way of saying the principles of church government. And so how does the church actually run? And there are a number of different forms of polity, but um, every church has some form of government that they operate by. Even churches that say, they don't still manage to find some uh, way to function. And uh, some is uh, more organized and detailed and laid out as is with the uh, Presbyterian system and others are sort of more free flowing and loose as you'll find often in uh, independent or non-denominational uh, churches. So that's all we're talking about. How does the church run? But why is that important? One, every church has to run uh, somehow. Right. Somebody has to make decisions. Somebody has to decide who's going to do what when. But lately, it's become a much bigger issue. Uh, the big podcast in the evangelical world right now is the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And there's a number of things for that. Don't want to get in detail. But one of the things, they had a very intentional change in church polity about halfway through uh, their existence. And that actually made it much easier for some of the sort of dysfunction uh, to come out because they changed the rules. And often people aren't aware when the rules get changed. And so it's very helpful to be very above board, let everybody know this is how we operate, this is how we do things. And uh, so polity has gotten a new attention in the evangelical world. Now, there's essentially four major forms of church government, uh, an Episcopalian form, 
a single elder-led congregational form, a plural-led congregational form in Presbyterian. All of them can be made to work and all of them can be uh, abused. All of them can be uh, ignored or used in name only. So part of it is whatever you're doing, are you willing to actually follow it? Mm. And so even though I advocate for a Presbyterian form of government, if you don't follow it closely, it's not hard to abuse. Mm. And so that's one of the things that comes up. We're in a day of celebrity pastors and uh, people using uh, what they call toxic authority. Polity is actually designed to deal with a lot of those issues, prevent a lot of those issues. And most of the time when we have those issues, it's because it hasn't been carefully followed. Mm. So in some of these instances, you've got people, you know, well-meaning people who resist a kind of formal polity or formal structure because they feel like that in some way quenches the spirit or something like that. You know, that, that, that the leadership of the church, when we go back to the early church, you see people being led by the spirit. And, and now it's all these rules and regulations, you know, what do you say to someone who goes, hey, listen, this is this is man's way of ordering. This isn't how God would have intended it. Charisma to like Robert's rules. Right. <laughs> From charisma <laughs> to Robert's rules. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, the Holy Spirit uses means. Yeah, so right. you get this question even in my preaching classes where somebody says, you know, just let the Holy Spirit work, you know, Saturday and Sunday morning. And I remind them the Holy Spirit is equally active on Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, So that's the first thing is that the Holy Spirit uses lots of means. It's not just a sort of personal experience, uses other people, churches, and even uh, church polity. The the second part of that is, I think there's a strong biblical basis for having a form of church government. And there's a number of things in there that almost everyone agrees on. First and foremost, Jesus is the head of the church. And there's lots of Bible passages that that talk about Jesus as the head of the church. He's actually given that title as the head of the church. And a lot of people give, uh, agree with that and give lip service to it, but then run it as if it's my church. Hmm. And I have found that even on uh, my church, my session, um, we meet once a month for prayer and often, I end that prayer time with that reminder that this is Jesus' church, that's his agenda that matters, that we as a group are trying to follow him. Mm -hmm. And I think people need that reminder on a regular basis, and especially pastors, because it's very easy for us to think, well, this is my church. And it's not. Ultimately, it's Jesus' church. It's his people. He's the one who died for him. And that's a you know, principle number one that we can't forget. Amen. You go back to the early church and you look at the spirit-led church, you know, in Acts 15, as they're watching all of the Gentiles come in in mass at a higher rate than they're seeing the Judeans come into the church. And Paul and Barnabas are having all these successes. So they return to Jerusalem. And I think many Christians would suspect, so then they just asked Peter and he kind of meditated in the spirit and gave them an answer. But that's not what happened. You know, they get together and they vote, mm-hmm. and then the vote is kind of a compromise vote. They're like, okay, let them in, but give them some rules. You know, it's, it kind of feels sort of like a Presbyterian meeting. 
And I think that's true. We actually appeal to Acts 15 uh, as one of the uh, key texts for the Presbyterian form of government. Mm-hmm. And there is debate over that. It is a matter of interpretation. And sure. you know, one of the things you quickly learn when it comes to polity, a lot is a matter of interpretation. But it's one of those subjects that can't be avoided because there's so much scripture that deals with it. Mm-hmm. And so at some point, if you don't deal with it, or you say, we don't need this, you have to ignore or downplay a substantial amount of uh, biblical material uh, in order to get away with that. And so it's very important that we are constantly pointing people back to what does the scripture say uh, about these things? And um, well, question about that. So we've got these kind of scriptural principles and I'd love to hear like more reflection on that. So you got, you know, Christ is head of the church as a scriptural principle. We've got that kind of Acts 15. Paul, uh, as a corollary to that, we might mention like Galatians 1 and 2, where Paul, Paul, though he got his gospel from Jesus Christ directly, lest he seem to have gone astray, he consults, right? So there's this partnership idea. So you've got these kind of like big building blocks in scripture other spots in scripture we could go for, for like reform principles in polity. And then much of, you know, our practices aren't necessarily based in scripture, not specifically, you know, general assembly is not something that we tag. Oh, that's, you know, Galatians seven, nine. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, where do we go? How do we build off of these kind of building blocks in a way that that's distinctly reformed, et cetera. Okay, well, one of the things that we talk about, uh, and I'm most familiar with the PCA because that's been my 30-year, for almost 40-year history now uh, in the church, but at the beginning of the Book of Church Order, uh, there is a, a couple of pages called the Preliminary Principles, and they are the most important part of the Book of Church Order. And I say that because... Uh, I was examined on Book of Church Order by Jack Williamson, who taught church polity at RTS Jackson for years and years. And uh, when he examined me, he lectured for 20 minutes on the importance of the preliminary principles and then stopped and without asking me any questions. And so there was just dead silence in the room out in front of this credentials committee. And then he just looked at me and said, now, David, do you believe that? And I said, yes, sir. And the whole room cracked up. And one of the other guys said, you didn't understand half of what he said because we didn't understand half of what he said, but you had the right answer, which was <laughs> yes, sir. And, uh, but I've never forgotten that because that's proved true. There are a number of preliminary principles um, that directly answer uh, the question. One is there are things that because the scripture we do have that we make deductions by good and necessary consequence, that they lead us to make these common sense uh, type decisions. And so there are things we do kind of based on the big principles that we make specific decisions and we don't want to make decisions that violate those principles. Now, some of those uh, principles are gonna be all our power is moral and declarative. That means I can't make anyone do anything. 
I bring the moral authority of the scriptures. Uh, I declare what is uh, God has taught us in that area. I can't make people obey it. I can present it to them. I can do it as clearly uh, as I know how, but ultimately I have no authority to force them to do something. That's actually an important principle. You know, we're not in a civil authority. We're ecclesiastical authority. Another one is only the, the Lord is the Lord of the conscience. Uh, only Jesus can bind the conscience. So I can say, uh, for example, this past summer, I preached a series of one another commands, love one another, serve one another, care for one another. Uh, there's a whole bunch of them. And we picked about a dozen of them. And so I have no problem saying you, you know, the Lord is telling you to serve one another because it says right here in this text that you should do that. I can't give a command to my people without having a text to back it up. And then I, at that point, I'm binding their conscience because then Dave is telling them to do something right. as opposed to the Lord is telling them. You have to, to be something. careful about pastorally about what, you know, it, what you bind the conscience with. So I remember as a church, we did a you know, big building campaign and all this kind of stuff. And we wanted to pray and, and fast and, and all these kinds of things. But because of that, you can't bind the conscience rule. We had to be careful. You know, we are not calling for everybody. We're not commanding you to fast, but we're setting aside this day. Should you freely decide to join us to, to come and, some of our church members wondered about that, but it's an important protection of their freedom and their conscience before the Lord. Sure. And there's lots of things we do that are good things that I would recommend people do. Right. Uh, in our church, we have a small group system. We call them community groups. I would love if every single member of our church was in a community group. Approximately two thirds of them are, but I can't command that. You know, you don't find community groups in the scriptures. And so there is no biblical command to say you have to be in a group. I can say, I think it is wise for your spiritual health that you participate in one of these groups, but I can't make them. I can't require them to. And one of the dangers we have is we don't make church membership clear. We add a lot of things to membership. So within the PCA, OPC, the, the ones that I'm familiar with, membership is pretty simple. You basically need to be a Christian. You need to promise to support the church and submit to the government and discipline of the church. That's about it. You're not signing off on infant baptism or predestination. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we require all our officers yeah. to sign off on everything, but not members. A common thing that's come out really came out of the great movement in the last 50 years, the, the growth of non-denominational churches, the growth of mega churches, is to create a membership covenant. And one of the dangers is they've added a lot of things, like you must be in a group, you know, you, you must do these things. The are not required of Christians in general. And so someone who has a valid profession of faith decides for whatever reason they can't be in a group, is that a disciplinary matter? Churches get in trouble 
when we start adding things mm -hmm. to a basic profession of faith. And that starts with church membership. Mm -hmm. And um, so when I teach the polity class here, the very first lecture is what is church membership and why do we have it? Why is it important? And how do we not overdo it? So I have a question. What is church membership and why do we have it? <laughs> and how do we not overdo it? Um, I've seen, well, so, so one of the things we struggled with as a church is we'd often get folks coming to our church and they have no, from other churches, and they have no concept of church membership. Like, how would you legitimize that biblically? Okay. Well, first of all, sort of your first two kind of go-to passages are going to be um, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16 and chapter 18. And part of it is because they're dealing with subjects that almost assume mm. some sort of membership. Mm. At Matthew 16, we have the church is built by Christ. At Matthew 18, we have this well-known passage on uh, church discipline, often taken out of context. You know, and one of the issues you address is you can't put people out of something you never brought them into. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there is much, we, we have it as uh, in some ways in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Lord's Supper, uh, being a part of the church is presented as almost a prerequisite. You have to discern the body of Christ. So there, are, there is actually lots of scripture that assumes some method of belonging. And so, uh, you know, an actual definition, this is not my definition, this is Jonathan uh, Lehman's, he's uh, part of the Nine Marks Network, but in his book on church membership, he says, church membership is a formal relationship between a church and a Christian, characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's discipleship, and that Christian's submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of the church. So that's a, a fairly simple definition that it says, you know, we've created a relationship where you're going to care for you and shepherd uh, you, and you are going to live out your faith in this context of caring and shepherding. Now, biblically, you know, you have the command in Hebrews to obey your leaders. They keep uh, watch over your souls, and they have to give an account. Well, if you don't have members, if you don't belong, you don't have leaders. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, somehow uh, you have to have sort of this, a structure for leadership. That's, again, a passage that assumes that. Look at all the metaphors the Bible uses for the church. It's a temple, it's a body, it's a flock, it's a family. Most of them have some sense of group cohesion, mm -hmm. some sense of belonging, you know, you belong to a flock, you're part of the temple, you're uh, a part of the body. You're numbered um, in some way. Right. Yeah. And so uh, church membership uh, lets us do that. Now, a lot of churches don't have membership, sort of just have what we call church attenders. And um, one of the problems is you have no direct sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. And it's very easy, this is a huge issue uh, in the very large churches where people want the benefits of the church without the responsibility of the church. And membership immediately 
says this is a two-way street. There are benefits, but there's also responsibilities. And um, so I think there's, you know, there's a good cause to argue for um, the membership. And there's a number of, you know, small books that make that uh, case uh, for church membership. That idea of formalizing, I think right now there's a pushback right now against kind of formal arrangements, right? The of institution, we talk about this phrase institutions, like institutionalized religion. What people are really talking about there is a kind of formal arrangement, right? Not a spontaneous extemporaneous arrangement, but a formal arrangement. You even started early on talking about you know, a tragic situation in church because of kind of extemporaneous changing of structure in order to meet immediate needs. And I think about that. It's, it's interesting what you just said made me realize, you know, it's, it's not just the pastor being limited and constrained or the session, the leadership being constrained by the structure, but it's also the member who is now constrained. It's kind of putting themselves in this relationship. And that is both, as you said, it's a benefit because you can, you can point at the structure and you can say, I have, you know, there's protections in this for me, you know, but there's also this opportunity for constraint and discipline. And you mentioned discipline and I, and I wanted to kind of touch on discipline real quick, as you're talking about the binding of the conscience. Can you help us understand? Cause I know as you're talking about a pastor or a, uh, an elder saying, I can't make someone do something. And yet at the same time, I can hear someone saying, well, we do have this thing called church discipline. And I think it gets at how do we think about church discipline? What's the, what's the right way to think about church discipline in terms of the authority that that gives the church, the protection that that gives the individual members of the church? How ought we think about it in, uh, in, in kind of a healthy way? That's not about binding the conscience, but is about, as we saw in the definition, discipleship. Sure. And I would argue the discipline begins in the pulpit mm-hmm. in the sense of, with the instruction from God's word. And, you know, as uh, Paul says in Romans, you know, until I had the law, I didn't know what my sin was. Mm-hmm. And there's an idea, people don't know the commands of the Lord. They don't know uh, the things the Lord has taught unless there's instruction from God's word. Mm-hmm. And that's first and foremost, discipline fails in many churches because they lack instruction in God's word. And I see that, I even see that in some PCA churches. I I do some amount of uh, guest preaching and uh, had a woman come up to me that had been in church for decades and came up after the service and asked me if I always do that. And I said, do what? And she looked at me and said, you know, go through all the verses. And I said, uh, pretty much always do that. And she asked me, is that a new thing where people just kind of preach and teach through all the verses? And I was like, no, it's not really a new thing. It's been around for a long time. But what it taught me was in her 20 years in that church, she has not heard that kind of expository preaching. One of the reasons I was there, because this church has a history of division and dissension and discipline and largely because they haven't been systematically instructed from God's word. So all discipline begins there. And if you are not preaching and teaching God's word, then discipline is going to become a regular part of your life. 
Yeah. So that's the first thing uh, I, I would say about it. The second thing, it's clear because Jesus tells us and gives us the example in Matthew 18 that you have to address sin, you have to confront sin. And so he sort of lays out the fundamental principle there in Matthew 18 that church discipline, there, there's really three purposes, but the first one is for the reclaiming and restoration and reconciliation of sinners, both to the church and to the Lord. And that's our motivation. If we have any other motivation, we're doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, our job in discipline is to win this person back to the Lord, whatever they've done. Even if we go all the way through and end up with an excommunication, uh, say most common would be an immorality situation. We have never, ex in, at least in my experience, we've never excommunicated anyone for immorality. We excommunicated them for the refusal to repent mm -hmm. of that immorality. Mm -hmm. If they repent, we bring them right back in. Now we may bring them in with counseling and mentoring and sure. shepherding and care, but we welcome them and work with them. And, and I've seen that go both ways in the church. One of the big things people forget about Matthew 18 is we have this passage about discipline. What is immediately follows it? We have principles of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Immediately following the section on discipline, is this whole section on forgiveness. And, um, you know, in Corinthians, Paul uh, talks at one place about remove this man from among you. And then you go a few chapters down the road and it's, you need to welcome him back. If he's repented, bring him back and restore him. So that's our first thing. We want to restore and reconcile people, both to the church and to the Lord. Amen. The second thing is we keep, we, we want sin not to spread throughout the church. If you allow a person to be very divisive within the church and you don't address it, well, pretty soon you have three people being divisive within the church and it keeps going and it, it just can wreck a church. So you need to keep that uh, from spreading. And then ultimately there is this desire to uh, biblically to honor the name of Christ. Are we allowing things to happen that dishonor the Lord? Are we allowing things that don't protect the purity of the church? The church is called the bride of Christ, the great wedding passage of Ephesians 5, great marriage passage, is much more about Christ and the church than it is about our marriage. And it says the goal there is to present them, you know, pure and blameless and without blemish. Um, and that's the way Christ wants us to deal with the church. So you have that sort of purity and honor of Christ, the restraint of sin in the body. Um, of course, we have all the passages about, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Um, so we want to restrain sin, but ultimately we're trying to reclaim and restore sinners. And that applies to everybody in the church. And so that's sort of a constant goal that we have. Mm -hmm. If discipline's being done as a form of punishment, yeah. we're going into it the wrong way. Discipline should be done with tears. Yeah. 
what's really coming across in this conversation is how theological and biblically grounded policy is, that, that polity is not just something that is practical or something that is up to us, as if we have the freedom to just decide for ourselves what our church polity should look like, but it should be grounded theologically in scripture. I think that's really important because in the context of ministries where I've been in, lots of folks and, and churches use the term reformed, but what they mean by that normally are in their mind anyway, more explicitly theological issues like predestination, um, infant baptism, maybe even, or union with Christ. And then when it comes to the, the to issues of polity, they think that this is really just issues that are common to human reason or even things that we can freely decide on our own. So how would you respond to folks who say, well, reformed theology is just about theological matters. There is no reformed ecclesiology or reformed church polity. What makes a reformed church polity distinct? What makes it reformed? And yeah, how would you respond to those who want to siphon off theological issues from um, policy issues? Well, both are based in the scriptures. So our reformed theology is based in the scriptures and our reformed polity or ecclesiology is based in the scriptures. So in, in those cases, you have to go back to the scriptures and present that if you think there is no, in a sense, biblical basis for uh, polity, what are you going to do with all these verses that talk about it? You have offices established. Um, you have this constant reference to overseers and elders. Who are those guys? You know, we have First uh, Timothy 3 and Titus 1, qualifications for officers, most of which, uh, at least uh, for the parts on the elder, uh, they're all character qualities except for two, able to teach and manage your household well. Everything else is a character quality that we rightly should expect of all believers. So, you know, you have this whole section on deacons. And so immediately you're confronted with who are these elders, overseers, deacons, why do we have them? What do they do? And now you're in the realm of polity, simply by trying to understand what does the scripture teach. And so my first response is the Bible talks about these things, and just as we get our theology from the scriptures, so we get our polity from the scriptures. You know, and some of the great passages that we normally look to for spiritual gifts actually tell us a lot about polity too. Ephesians uh, 4 and 1 Corinthians 12 talk about if God has gifted you in this area or God has, you know, one of the things that we forget is officers are a gift to the church. Hmm. It says if God uh, has given some to be evangelists, shepherds, teachers in Ephesians 4, he has given them. It is not that he's given them a gift to be a shepherd. He's given them to the church to be a shepherd. He's given them the church to be a teacher or an elder or a deacon. And one of the things we have to teach our people is when we present someone to them uh, as a newly ordained elder or deacon, they are being presented as a gift to the church. And so I think that's the first response is that here's what the Bible teaches. Now we're talking about 
how do we practically put this into effect uh, within the context of the local church? Which then brings follow-on questions regarding ordination, uh, really the issues of authority and responsibility. And one of the issues people have with church polity is it restricts church authority and it restricts church responsibility. What do you, what do you mean by that? One of the issues is- Well, is authority doesn't belong to everyone in the church. It belongs to those that God has given to the church to exercise authority. Um, so uh, we do that in the Presbyterian system through a process of ordination. And ordination says uh, that these people now have authority to act and make decisions. Now, in the Presbyterian world, that authority we talk about, the authority is exercised jointly, not severally, which really means by the group and not by the individual. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the authority is given to the session, which is our name for the Board of Elders, but not to the individual elder unless he's acting on behalf of the session. So the elder can't say, well, I'm an elder, I can make all these decisions. It is the group the, of elders that make those decisions. That's so that's also true with responsibility. Elders are given the responsibility for the preaching ministry of the church. We don't give that to everyone in the church. We give that in our case, specifically to teaching elders, um, but ruling elders have a ministry of uh, teaching God's word. Uh, in my church, I have two ruling elders preach every summer. And uh, part is I want to be able to see that the elders can teach one-on-one, -on -one, one, a small group, whether that's a Bible study or a Sunday school class, and a large group. So they rotate through. They get to preach uh, every so often but I still do the bulk of the preaching. That responsibility is given to me. You could uh, make the same argument with the sacraments and a number of other things. Not everyone has uh, all the responsibilities of the church. So authority is given to some, responsibility is given to some. It's really interesting because that actually does distinguish the Presbyterian system from some other systems of government in that there's a hierarchy in the sense of, you, have, you know, like a, the courts, right? You have mm -hmm. the session and the Presbytery and general assembly, and I guess at the bottom, you have like the evangelist, right? The missionary church. But you have these kind of, that sort of hierarchy in terms of structure, but this is not a hierarchy in terms of closeness to God, right? Or, you know, the, the, the session is not where the church really happens or something like that, or someone is in some sort of a um, intercessory between the congregation and their savior, right? And that's something to me, I mean, growing up, I didn't really understand that, I think, growing up in the church, that I did think the pastor was kind of like supposed to be the best of us, you know, kind of the closest to God. <laughs> now, pastor should be the best of us, Lord willing, right? And being able to be held accountable for the job that he's been given in the role, but he's not in some kind of special spiritual status in the church. And that's a unique distinction you know, that we should consider as Presbyterians, right? This kind of the church as uh, the pastors, as, as shepherds, as facilitators, but not as somehow being closer to heaven than the rest of us. And ultimately, and again, I think almost all forms of government would agree that Jesus is the chief shepherd, mm -hmm. you know, and 
we are to be under shepherds in whatever form of government we hold to. But one of the things that's unique in Presbyterian form of government is we actually argue for equal authority at each level. So the session has authority uh, over people in terms of church discipline, in terms of the preaching and teaching ministry of the church, just as a presbytery has authority as the General Assembly. The General Assembly does not have greater authority. Right. Now, we do have structures in place for review and control of the, what we call the lower courts, right. particularly on judicial matters. So a session keeps records, uh, keeps minutes of their meeting, and the Presbytery reviews them to make sure they didn't do something that uh, violates um, what we believe or our form of government. Presbytery keeps the minutes, the General Assembly reviews them. But we try to interfere as little as possible. Sessions are given great discretion. That's the, prin the, principle, the principle is one of deference. Right. 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 And so unless you can show a clear violation mm -hmm. of our standards or the scriptures, so our standards, the church constitution would be the confession of faith, the catechisms and the book of church order, um, both of which are subordinate to the scriptures themselves. So unless you can point to one of those three things and say they have, in a sense, broken the rules, you have a lot of deference to how you do business. Right. Um, Which sometimes can be can be frustrating, you know, when you're serving on a presbytery or in the General Assembly and you want some sort of, if you operate with a kind of like, they should declare model, the higher authority should declare and fix this. It can be frustrating when they refuse to, but it's also consistent with our polity. That that's, not, that's not actually their job. It is. Having served on the administrative committee uh, of the PCA for 11 years. Uh, I spent a lot of time with uh, Roy Taylor, who is, um, was our stated clerk for 20 some years, a wise and gifted uh, man. And uh, he would get phone calls. People say, well, why don't you do something about this? And he had this standard form letter, which he called the, I am not a bishop letter. <laughs> they said to him and explained, there is church court. Yeah. This yeah. needs to go to the session or this needs to go to the presbytery. So, I mean, coming back to the, your comment there, Dave, about limitation of authority, right? I think so many of the issues that you mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast was really due to that, that fact that people do act as if they are the only authority. There is a kind of bishop-like authority given to particular individuals. So the, the, the Presbyterian principle, so much of it is about not just limiting human authority because we are under god's authority but also limiting the the self or the individual's authority from from overreaching and this is why we have a plurality of or, uh, of elders so could you say a little bit more about the principle of the plurality of elders okay so i think there's uh there, there's two ways to come at that one of course is uh biblically you have this constant use of elders in the new testament paul says in acts you know that he went and pointed uh, went from town to town and appointed elders in each church. You have a use throughout uh, most of Paul's uh, writing of this idea of having elders and deacons. So, you know, we always want to start with what does the scripture say, but there is a sort of a common sense 
uh, approach here, and one I'm going to argue that almost everybody does. So first of all, when a congregation elects its elders, one of our preliminary principles is every society has the right to elect its own leadership, that it's not going to be imposed on them from outside. So that would separate us um, from uh, a Lutheran model or an Anglican model. So the congregation elects its elders and the theory is they're going to elect the most godly people. They're going to look at those qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and elect people who match those the best. So now authority resides in this small group of, and some of our big churches, it's not so small group, but um, usually it's in sort of that four to 12 people range for probably 90% of the churches, at least in the PCA. And that these are godly, wise people that we trust who've been given the authority over the church. Because if you look at the whole church, you have the whole range of maturity. You have people who've been Christians for, you know, 70, 80 years. You have people who are brand new Christians. In most of our churches, we have people who are still trying to figure it out, or maybe are just been presented with Christianity. Uh, I assume that every Sunday I have unbelievers in my congregation because I don't know everybody that walks through the door. I may have uh, family members that are here visiting someone. I don't know anything about them. So, but if you sort of give authority to everyone equally, you have the least mature, possibly overriding the decisions of the most mature. So there is this idea of you are attempting to put the uh, people who are the most spiritually mature in those positions of authority. Now, the reality is in a congregational system, a Baptist church, a Bible church, a non-denominational church, inevitably there is some sort of board. Traditionally in a single elder-led congregational church that was very common amongst the, the Southern Baptist Convention for years, that is changing now, that's more recent, they would have a, de a board of deacons which de facto functioned as a Presbyterian Board of Elders. In an Anglican system, even though the authority is given to the rector, which is the name for the pastor, he would have a vestry comprised of wardens who functioned as de facto uh, elders. Now, a lot of Anglican churches are now calling it a parish council or a leadership board or some other you know, a shepherding group, some other name. But traditionally that was called a vestry and those people elected were called wardens. So the reality is almost everyone follows a de facto Presbyterian model to some form. And I think that's important for people to see one of the values of that. The reason why even people who don't hold the Presbyterian polity still do this is because there's you know, good common sense. You know, we have, there's, uh, you know, wisdom in having many counselors. And it helps all of us in every system from being dominated by a single personality. That can happen in every system, but we try not to let that happen as often as we can. So that's true that there is a, I, I was raised in an Anglican context, and that's true, there is a kind of de facto plurality of elders 
and sometimes that's more pronounced and sometimes it's less. In the Presbyterian argument, I can imagine an Anglican friend saying, well, you know, in your plurality system, there's also kind of a de facto Episcopalianism because the pastor is usually kind of the first amongst the session. And this, uh, this made up Anglican might even say, I've talked to Presbyterian pastors who have said that's how they govern their church mm-hmm. and that they are actually the head of the session. They never put up a vote that they don't know where it's going to go. They've already worked the system. You know, they have a kind of bishopric uh, in their session. What is your advice? This is, a, this is an advice. Obviously, these are things that happen outside of the system. These are the ways that people work around the structure. What's your advice to young pastors as they're looking to go into churches, how ought they think about their role within the session? Okay, first of all, there are some truths to what folks are saying. Mm-hmm. I mean, we teach, I teach that the, the pastor of the church is first among equals. But what it says is they're all equals. Mm-hmm. You know, I only get one vote at our session meetings and I have a whole bunch of other elders and they all get one vote. And uh, I work very hard to bring us to consensus. It's very rare that we have a divided vote. Mm-hmm. Now, part of that is because I've been there a long time. Right, got um, the credibility. Right, yeah. but, uh, but there is some truth to that. Uh, our book of church order says the pastor is the moderator of the session by virtue of his office. So you do have a sense that yes, all the elders are equal, but the reality is the uh, pastor, that senior teaching elder, is first among equals. Mm-hmm. And um, but, what, would you say that moderator role, that's, not, that's a non-declarative. You know, it doesn't mean that they have more authority. Correct. But that they are fostering the, the cohesion well, of the, like you said, working yeah. for. I, I would say it doesn't mean they have more authority, but I would argue in most cases, it means they have more influence. Yeah. No, that's, yeah. So I set the agenda for our session. Yeah, the power of the docket. Yeah. Right. And, you know, the, uh, so if uh, one of the ruling elders wants something discussed at a meeting, he'll send me an email and say, can you add this to the docket, which yeah. I always do. And, uh, but, you know, I, I set the agenda uh, mm. for the meeting. And so there is a great deal of influence. Now, that's different for someone like me who's been there for 25 years, mm-hmm. as opposed to a guy who graduates from seminary, gets his first call, maybe he's a solo pastor, and he walks into a room where there's guys who've been elders for 20 years. Yeah. And so there is a sense of learning how to defer to wisdom and experience you're going to bring your education into that room, maybe your uh, knowledge of the Bible. But these people have more shepherding experience than you you ever had. And so you do have to learn how to defer to wisdom and experience. Yeah, that's good. And I think it's really important for particularly new guys to, uh, I tell them you're, your first three years, your number one leadership skill is listening. Mm. And if you are going to win over those ruling elders, you are going to have to be a good listener. Yeah. One of the other things I tell my polity classes is for the most part, the ruling elders led us, the teaching elders, 
run the church. Mm. But the reality is they own the church. Yeah. I mean, not physically, financially, but <laughs> right. ultimately right. the ruling elders, because there's one of you and six of them. Yeah. You know, they're the ones they got the power of the numbers. They yeah. have the power. And um, you know, so there is a sense of taking them into consideration, uh, listening to them carefully, making sure that they feel that they're heard. Mm-hmm. And it, it can resemble a herding cats sometimes, I imagine, particularly with a large session. Yeah. Uh, I encourage young pastors spend a lot of time with their leaders. Their first job in shepherding the church is to shepherd the leaders of the church. Yeah. They need to be going out to lunch with these guys, talking to them, uh, doing a lot of listening. Uh, recently, a guy went to a new church and he said, what? What should be my first step? And I said, I would take every elder out to lunch and ask them to tell you the story of how they came to that church and how they got involved and how they became an elder. And then just listen. That's good. Yeah. Um, and they'll learn that you value their opinion. So, you know, one of the things having been there so long is, you know, I have an attorney, I have a, a some businessmen, I have IT people. I have engineers, they all don't think and work and act the same way. You know, my business guys want to make decisions and move on on the agenda. And my engineers, you can almost see the gears turning is how is this going to play out, you know, uh, you know, down the road, three or four steps. And um, the business guys help you get stuff done and the engineers keep you from making stupid decisions. What do you do Um, with the poets? Uh, a lot of times we just listen and smile. Okay. Um, Fair. The, uh, you know, the, the, the poets, the artists, I have one who's a musician and a teacher and often things different. You'll have elders that are more bent towards shepherding and caring yeah. and others that are much more pragmatic and business minded. One of the job of the moderator, or in this case, that usually it's the, solo pastor or the senior pastor is to manage all the personalities so everyone feels they've contributed and they've been heard mm-hmm. even if the decision didn't go their way right you know and you, you, the other thing is you're constantly reminding people you know we have differing opinions in the room but once we make a decision and walk out of the room this is the decision of the session mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. not like well that's what scott wanted yeah. You know, it's this is the decision of the session. And it's not like, well, I wanted X, but those guys, you know, I don't allow any of that. You don't do minority reports? No, there's uh, not not at the session level. Uh-huh. You know, you you have your case, you know, you have your time to make your case. And we had cases where it was like a seven to one and the one persuaded the seven. Hmm. We also had cases where seven to one, and when finally came time to the vote, the one said, you know, in submission to my brothers, I'm gonna be the first one to vote yes. Hmm. And actually to make it unanimous out of submission to the brothers, which is one of our ordination vows, is to be subject to the brothers. Hmm. Um, So one of the things we have to work on with our, particularly our young pastors is to be good shepherds of people and of our leaders. So 
I think Gray had a question. Yeah, uh, just considering some of the common objections that I've heard against Presbyterianism from sort of an Asian setting, normally I would hear that they would push back. They would say, well, Presbyterianism means that decision-making is incredibly slow because you're constantly wanting to find that unanimous decision. You're also uh, wanting to listen to so many other people. And the second thing that oftentimes get thrown out toward me was that so many in this culture really are drawn toward that dominating personality. They actually see that as a strength rather than as a weakness. And they see the sort of traits that you were mentioning, like listening and submitting to others and being sure that everybody is heard as a sign of weakness, as a sign of, of someone who shouldn't be a leader. So how would you respond to that sort of setting? And, and especially in a context where you might want to plant a church in this sort of setting, how, how would we respond to those issues? Well, I don't think they're unique to Asia. Uh, I think uh, Americans like that strong leader model and tend to gravitate to it. However, I don't find it to be particularly biblical. And ultimately, you know, that's, that's our trump card for everything um, is, okay, we don't view this the same way. What does the Bible uh, teach us on this? And the Bible actually has quite a bit to say about leadership as well. So the first thing I would almost concede, the first thing you said was it's a slow process. And sometimes that can get in the way. We would like uh, the deliberation to be quicker. And very early on in Presbyterian history, this is true for most Presbyterian denominations, probably not all, and I certainly don't know all of them, but we have made a decision to place effectiveness over efficiency. And particularly in modern America, we almost worship efficiency. But we have made a decision that we want to be effective more than to be efficient. There's things about uh, our model that are inefficient. An Anglican model where you have a bishop, that can be far more efficient, where he just makes the decision and you do it. But we're, we are valuing uh, effectiveness of ministry over efficiency of ministry. And that means we need a more deliberative process that includes uh, more people. And that's true, not just at the local session level, it's even more true at the Presbytery and at the General Assembly level. The General Assembly is designed to be a slow, deliberative, effective process. It frustrates a lot of people that wanna have decisions made quicker. But there, again, there's a built-in protection of not rushing to judgment, not making a decision too quickly. You know, anybody that's involved in any of those three levels knows whenever any issue comes, you never have all the information. And so part of a slow process gives you time to assess the situation and to gather more information. Um, and uh, so that's the, the first thing I would say is it is a slower process. Uh, there is no doubt. And in a culture of American individualism and sort of the rugged pioneer and that CEO model of leadership, that grates people the wrong way. And yet I think you can make a far more biblical argument uh, for that. You know, even if you look at Paul, who was an apostle, who if anyone could have been in that leader, he gathered people around him. You know, Barnabas, Timothy, Epaphroditus, Silas, 
Uh, he always had people with him that he could rely on. You know, Moses, this is too much for me. And the Lord said, gather all the elders around you to help support you and to uh, divide up the work. So I think there's a biblical argument for having this plurality, having these people, having this somewhat slower deliberative process. But I agree, people much prefer the strong dominant leader model. In the evangelical world, we're backing off that a little bit just because we've seen so many celebrity pastors fall in the last 20 years. And finally, people are saying, you know, maybe this isn't working so well. And that dynamic that you see on the celebrity pastor, I mean, that you can have a very small local church dynamic that functions that way too. That model is, is attractive. Uh, a dominant personality can uh, upset any form of government. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that there's no doubt. And it's not, we've had them in the PCA and we no. removed a few guys no. uh, for that. Um, and uh, so that's uh that's important. Let me get back to the second part of your question, Gray, which is really, is not just a deliberative, but it's not a great leadership model. You know, this would almost be arguing uh, an American form of government versus a sole leader form of government. I hesitate to call it a dictator model because they're not always dictators, but where authority is completely invested in one person. I think often, even in America, when that goes wrong is because we don't keep the balance of powers that we have. And we wind up with people who make poor decisions because we've set aside our checks and balances. Uh, we have checks and balances within all the forms of church government. All three of them have built-in checks and balances. And when we ignore the form of government, when we set aside those checks and balances, often because we have that, not just that great leader, but it's usually more dominant personality. The person may not be a great leader. They just have a strong dominant personality. And uh, we wind up in the long-term hurting the church when we set the checks and balances aside. And I think that's true in most deliberative bodies. Mm. So which actually leads me, one of the questions Tommy, you had asked earlier was about Robert's rules of order and how they frustrate everybody. You know? Well, I was thinking, I'm thinking like at the Presbyterian, like a, especially young folks, they get in the Presbyterian, why are we calling this the previous speaker? Like, why can't I just call him Bob? Mm -hmm. You know, this feels very impersonal, feels very detached. Yeah, there's, uh, there's two big issues going on with parliamentary procedure and Robert's Rules of Order when they're applied there. And the first one is you're protecting the rights of all the parties. So there's you protect the rights of the majority that you actually get to make a decision and the majority does that. And you're not going to easily overturn uh, what the majority has decided. But you're also protecting the rights of the minority. And uh, so if you're on the uh, tail end of a vote, say it's a two thirds to one third vote, the minority has the right to be heard. They have the right to make their case. The majority can't make a decision and ignore the minority. They get to make 
uh, their argument. But the system also protects the rights of the absent in the sense that we are we're guarding against the attempt to use absences unfairly. So there's much of the rules that talk about notice has to be given so many days in advance where you can't call a quickie meeting and make a decision because I know Tommy and Scott aren't gonna be able to be at that meeting. So I'll make this decision and they won't know about it. Yeah. And so that's first thing is we're protecting the rights of everyone. Uh, the second thing normally falls under the heading of decorum. And that's when all the things of why can't I call him uh, Bob? And there is, and again, this goes so against the spirit of uh, the age today. Um, <laughs> there are rules that force us to focus on the issues and not the people. So one of those rules is you always address the moderator. Mm -hmm all comments are addressed to the chair. And if uh, I'm uh, on one side of the debate and you're on the other side of the debate, I can't get up there and say, well, Tommy's wrong. Now I may say, now I disagree with the previous speaker or the previous speaker said X and I'm going to explain why it should be Y. But what the intent is, is to take the personalities and uh, that out. Also, that I'm not attacking you know, people, that I'm sticking to the issue. Now, we live in a day and age of social media where we do the exact opposite. Somebody raises an issue and that person immediately gets attacked. That personality gets attacked. Screenshotted. Um, there's all sorts of things that can yeah. go wrong. And often the issue itself gets lost because now we're talking about whether I like that person or not, not whether whatever they said was right or good. And so one of the things Robert's rules enforces is this idea of decorum in debate and the idea that it forces us to stick to the issues and not to be swayed for or against because of the personalities. Where we follow it, it tends to be very effective and when we don't follow it, then uh, we pay the price for that. I love that. And it does raise the question for the next generation of pastors and presbyters as to uh, how we'll move forward. And will we be able to maintain the decorum of the parliamentary procedure in an age of live tweeting through General Assembly? And that's a, that's a real, real question. It's an important question. I love also your comment on effectiveness versus efficiency. And it's something we need to keep in mind as we're thinking about how to govern well in the church and how to be a part of this, this wonderful polity that has been developed over uh, through the teaching of scripture, but over the last 2000 years. Thank you, Dave, so much for your time and for guiding us through this conversation. Thanks for being with us today. Oh, you're welcome. It was my pleasure. And thank you to Timo Sazo, our, uh, our director and producer and editor and harbinger of a voice crying out in the social media wilderness whenever we post new episodes. Um, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Tell your friends um, about the Faculty Podcast. It's been great to be with you all and discuss this important topic today. We look forward to being with you again next week. Until then, take care.
it's important. I, you know, I was even struck by the fact you look in. I was struck by the fact that. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, you're okay. Don't worry about it. These, well, these, you know, these carpets are made to be able to handle it all. Oh, that was actually very clear in the mic. I could hear the. Uh, Did you hear every part of that? I heard every part good of that. Mic. I was it's really surprised. Anything. Could you tell that it was a Diet Coke and not a regular Coke? I don't know about that. I can tell if I taste it, though, I probably. They do fizz differently. Huh.